Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Miai, the producer with our host Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Hello, Art Grind listeners. Uh, today, Dina and I interviewed John Lee, who is a legend in the New York art scene. He had some great advice for artists pursuing a gallery. He's ran the gallery many different iterations, currently um, Bravin Lee Gallery that's been around since 1991, although, of course, different iterations. So 30, what is that, 30 years of experience, Dina? Um, you know, yes, but he's also, he's wonderful. He's smart. He's funny. He tells good stories. Hilarious. He's very like, he, yeah, he's completely uncensored. I got a huge kick out of this one. Um, Marshall, I think you, you too, I think. I do too. Great stories, super sharp, like a guy that you will enjoy hanging out with for an hour. So um, yeah, so um, ha- happy listening, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, John Lees is here. It's the Art Crime Podcast. So, John. Some people would say that there's two of me. That, that there's enough of me that there's actually two of me. So, the John Lees is probably okay. <laughs> no, I, I meant John Lee. It's, it's, a, it's a little list. You no, know, so. a lot of people, everybody calls, when you have a name as simple as John Lee, everybody calls you John Lee. You're not John. There are too many Johns in the world. And so, I have used. My mom was always like, use the name John Postley, use your middle name. You must use your middle name. So I kind of used it for a while, but I'm John Lee, you know. And the gallery was John Postley at some point, right? Yeah, it was. It was originally John Postley. And Dean and I have spoken about this. And my name has a lot of, you know, I'm um, German and Russian Jewish on both sides of my parents. You know, both my parents are Jewish. And my name is really like kind of like a transliteration of Jacob Polonsky Levy. Hmm. So I was like given this very Goetia name so that I could kind of like be like a stealth Drew and travel among, you know, the Goyam. And um, because my father was like so um, had suffered so much anti-Semitism in the car business that he wanted me to have a name that would allow me to pass. Um, but uh, when you're John Lee, you constantly are being misidentified by your doctors like you know like my doctor will say well how are those hemorrhoids and i'm like i don't where do i live (laughs) he's like no i don't live there that's another john lee (laughs) so so your your father sold cars yeah he was a car dealer he was a pontiac dealer wow he was a subaru dealer huh so he, so, he, so he loved art. He loved me to be into art. He loved art. And I was very nurtured to be in art. And he would always say that, um, you know, when I got interested in being an art dealer and I was taking so much art history, he sort of paraphrased a Thomas Jefferson quote. And he said, I was an art dealer so that you could be, I mean, I was a car dealer so that you could be an art dealer. Mm. Um, and then it turned out I was a car dealer. But <laughs> The Thomas Jefferson quote is, we're we're soldiers so that our children can be statesmen, so that their children can be poets. Mm. I just like that. Um, I, I hope my that. kids are not poets. Like, 
God forbid they should be poets. You know, I actually, I actually recently read this kind of depressing article about, um, you know, about immigrants. And, you know, there's like the first generation immigrants, which is, I mean, which I guess I vaguely like, like I came with my parents, but they were the ones that had to like make a life in the country and learn the language. And, you know, as a kid for me, it was easier. So apparently the second generation does really well because they tend to be, you know, like the first generation is really hardworking. The second generation does really well because they benefit from like the knowledge of the system. They still have the work ethic of the first generation and they have the financial backing and the ambition. And apparently, I can't remember the, the article refer to the third generation like you know basically my kids as it's either like generational decline or atrophy or like some, something really awful where basically they're like and the third generation ends up being a bunch of wastrels and lose the work yeah, ethic of course, right it was yeah. so, so sad <laughs> no i mean i think that there's some truth i mean i think that um i have a little bit of the you know i have a little bit of all of the uh, i have a little bit of immigrant mentality but I, I am sort of more third generation. I'm sort of a more like a bit of a like life is like a salad bar for me. And then you also notice that if, you know, at least in among Jews, like the first generation doesn't drink. You know, you notice Jews like are considered to be like teetotalers. And then the second generation like has a glass of wine once in a while. And I'm like the third generation. Like <laughs> I cannot, it is almost impossible for me to have personality without having alcohol in me. I'm like doing the best I can at like, 2.33 in the afternoon. But if you really <laughs> want to see the real John Lee, it's going to be like at six or seven o'clock. Uh, do, so, do you want to pretend, if it's going to loosen you up, do you want to pretend at six or seven o'clock? I pretend at six or seven have, o'clock have a all the time. I'll just <laughs> pretend that this is like talk show coffee. <laughs> um, it's funny. I, I actually come from like, a, so I come from a family of people who can really hold their alcohol. And I'm like the one, I think I might be the lame generation where I completely can't do it and never, you know, like don't drink anything stronger than coffee. And sometimes my parents are so, you know, appalled at my, you know, at my yeah. inability to party properly. But, well, uh, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, I like to, I like to, you know, have a drink or whatever, but I don't really like the whole culture of being really sloppy or whatever. My wife doesn't hardly drinks. Like if my, you know, so when we do stuff together, I'm like drinking, and like if she has one glass of wine, she like becomes Joan Collins. You know, she she doesn't drink at all, and she'll just like be lying in the coats at the party or whatever. <laughs> but um, yeah, so here I am, two thirty in the afternoon, trying to have personality. Oh. And your 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 wife is uh, the Bravin of Bravin Lee. That's correct. So yeah, we we uh, you know, and I always say it's is it's just very natural for us at this point that we. Um, I like to refer to her as my first wife, Karen, um, even though we're still married. Um, <laughs> so that yeah, that's so, the second one to come along. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we we've been you know we sort of kind of got into business together a little bit by mistake in that. I, I like opened my gallery in 1991 during Desert Storm. I always open and initiate things during major conflicts that shut down the economy. That's just smart. like I am. That's how I <laughs> That's how you roll. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, Desert Storm happens. And then Karen was the director of Langan O'Hara Gallery. And we, you know, she was working on um, Broadway and Prince. And I was like working. My gallery was like on... Broadway between Prince and Houston. And so then that, that gallery closed 
And then she kind of came to work for me. And then that was the John Post Lee Fine Art. And then I changed it. We changed it. We merged and we became Robin Postley. So I lost the John. And then eventually we partnered with Jay Gourney. And that was like Gourney, Bravin, and Lee. So I lost the Lee. So if we ever partner with another person, well, my name won't even be in it anymore. But uh, so that's like the evolution of, of, of the galleries. Wait, wait, so before we, you know, get to future where you take your name out of the equation and you, you disappear yourself, how did you wind up, you know, like, 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 how did you wind up in the business of selling art to begin with? Well, like I was saying, my dad was very encouraging and and he loved taking me to museums. And um, and then when I was like in high school, I like studied at the Barnes Foundation, like one day a week. They have like oh. a program there and it was pretty, a pretty cool thing. And I loved art. And then I, when I went to college, I went to Vassar College, sort of had it in my, I was like hedging my bets. And so I was a double major of poli pol political science and art history. And um and I really thought I was going to maybe go into art history, but I really kind of love the idea of politics and policy making and things like that. And statistics, actually, I really loved statistics in the, in the social sciences and political science. And um, I eventually sort of, I'll tell you, there was like a, a, a pivotal moment where I read it, you know, the, uh, the professors would hand back papers. And they would put them in these, you know, little bins and you would have to fish your paper out of the bin. And I, I would go in there and read the other kids' papers. I know that's wrong, right? <laughs> but I read this paper. Oh, no. I read this paper by this guy named, at the time, I didn't know he was going to go on to become like the head of old masters at Sotheby's and, you know, become like, a, but I read this paper on Watteau's The Swing by this guy named Alan Wintermute. And it just devastated me because I was like, I can't write like this. So mm. I, I did. And then I really didn't enjoy loneliness. I didn't really like being alone. And I think art history is like studying a lot. And I really didn't enjoy being alone in a study carol. And I, little by little, I kind of, you know, I just felt that I was better in a social situation. And um, then I started in, I interned at Rosa Esmond Gallery. And it was kind of like I made a decision. That's what I'm going to do. I was the kind of person that needed to, to know what I was going to do. And unlike people who are like, I'm not sure what interests me, I, I, I ultimately think I could have been like a good lawyer, um, but, uh, and I ta have taught art law, by the way, as crazy as that sounds. I don't, huh. I don't have a degree in art law, but I did teach it at the graduate school level. Um, uh, and I love law and I love the specific, you know, the specificity of it. And, um, but I just decided this is what I'm going to do. And so then the next thing that happened is I worked for Lee Krasner for a summer and then knowing her and then continuing to be friends with her, wow. she ended up hooking me up with my first job. And, um, and then the rest is kind of like history. Whoa, Lee Krasner. Yeah. So I lived with Lee Krasner in the in East Hampton in the house, like that, you know, the famous house, the famous house. I Fireplace Road, right? Yeah, exactly. Springs Fireplace Road. And she was a tough cookie, as they say. That's like a word um, when they call a woman a tough cookie. There's another word for it. But um, uh, she was like a tough cookie. But I really got, I was the only person, I was the only helper who ever survived an entire summer. Because in, mm. in her later years, she needed somebody. 
So I drove her around. It was one of the greatest things that ever happened because uh, I would take her to these parties that were out and, you know, and I met everybody and was like this young kid and just like soaking it up and just, just, it was just amazing. And I really loved it. And unfortunately, like in those days, I think about the fact that there's no picture of me and Lee Krasner because oh. there aren't photographs. There just wasn't the, 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 um, crazy amount of photography in the world, like with iPhones and stuff, but I don't have a picture of myself with her. And then so, I went to do, then I went to work for Tibor Dinaj, which was very interesting because I kind of became a specialist in like geriatric bosses, you know, having like geriatric bosses. And it, it's been an, it, it, it's been an interesting skill to have um, uh, and, and to take care of a person who, you know, you know, or or to be to be an underling to a person who is at that time in their life where they're very needy and a little bit, you know, maybe a little demented and forgetful. Mm. Um. Wait. So, um, when you say you know tough tough cookie or tough tough boss, uh, what did what did that actually entail? Uh, well, you know, Lee Lee was brilliant, and um, what did I do for her, or what was the um, tough cookie part? Um. What What was it? You know, what was it actually like? Well. Well, she, first of all, she was in an age where people were often um, kind of ghost. I don't know what the kids call this word, but a lot of people would say, I'm going to call you around two or three. And then they wouldn't like Barbara Rose or someone would be like, I'm calling you at two and we're going to do this thing. And so she was very like, she would have this schedule. And a lot of times these people were just kind of like, not on the same rigorous schedule she was at on. And she really didn't like me to leave the house very much. She was a little bit afraid of being alone. Hmm. So I spent like 12 weeks in the Hamptons with a lot of my friends being there because I was like 21. And she wouldn't let me go outside at night. And she wouldn't say I, you can't go outside at night. But it was clear that that made her very uncomfortable. And so there were a couple of times where I tried to sneak out and I ended up like in crazy ways, getting caught leaving the house. Wow. Um, and, wow. uh, and so that was a way in which I had sort of come to both, you know, admire her, but also saw her intensely manipulative side. And I used to write these letters, which I don't think exist anymore, where I was like pretended to be Jackson Pollock. And I was like, Jackson Pollock didn't crash his car. It wasn't an accident. He just knew that Lee Krasner was coming home in a couple of weeks from Europe and he just <laughs> decided to kill himself. So, cause I had been on Springs Fireplace Road. I had my Subaru cause my dad was a Subaru dealer. She paid me 50 bucks a week and that included me driving her in my car. Oh my God. <laughs> 50 bucks a week. And so there were times where I would just like joke about just running the car off the road and killing both of us, or at least hoping to. Wow, there's okay. so, there's not a lot written about that period then that you were there. So, but you were saying it was kind of still happening. Like, so you could go to a party on the Hamptons and de Kooning could, might be there or something. Was that? I never met Bill de Kooning, but I met a lot of the other uh, th that generation: um, Jimmy Ernst and Ibram Lassau, and met a lot of curators and Barbara Rose. I drove her around for days and days. And, um, uh, you know, like I would, Bob Littman, who, who was like curating a show called Krasner Pollock, a working relationship. And I oh. just learned a lot 
um, from being around these people and like soaked up the culture of of the Hamptons um, and these the, these this generation and uh, you know other generations of painters. And I took a lot of notes. A lot of my a lot, my files of my notes and my letters, which I had gotten back from people, I lost in Hurricane Sandy. But hmm. I'm sort of noted like in the in the um, Stephen Nafee, the on in the Pollock Krasner movie that the book that that was based on, like I'm in some of these books in these like little tangential ways because I've been interviewed here and there, you know, by the people writing the books and stuff. Hmm. We interviewed it was a few months ago. We interviewed Audrey Flack, who was kind uh -huh. of eventually who talked about. I actually think she talked about these people as being a little too wild, for, you know, like, and she seemed like she was wild enough. But she was so she's in her nineties now, and she was so sharp, like she was sharp, she was lucid, and she was incredibly excited about her next painting. And I was like, I want, I want to be like that. If I, you know, if I make it till ninety yeah. something, I want to be just like her. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love work by artists that are. You know, like oh, late. I always loved, even when you're not supposed to. I loved late de Kooning. Mm. Um, like in the '80s, they were considered to be like terrible. You couldn't give them away. These paintings. I mean, they weren't cheap, so it's not like they were giving them away anyway. But they weren't beloved. And I now, now I think that people really recognize that. You know, gr late Matisse's, a lot. Some artists they just get better because they're sort of working off of muscle memory, and. Mm that that they're no longer they're like truly like bypassing intellect and the hand and the brush is just like doing what it's supposed to do and not what it's meant to do well that's such an interesting point like bypassing intellect i love that framing because i've been thinking about it the same way with musicians like dylan's still doing great work and it's like how are they like it seems like there's some of these type of lifers who just keep doing and keep excelling that it feels so exciting to me or and then there's like the opposite which would be like the who <laughs> yeah, that's nostalgia tours for the who yeah. <laughs> or like um uh uh what is it called uh, the band you're not supposed to like what's the band you're not supposed to like um marshall, marshall would know that but you're marshall you're that. the music expert who's the band you're not supposed I'll think to like of it in a few minutes i, I, I mean them. the stones just came out with a pretty decent album for them all being 80 which is i think they're amazing the stones are amazing i sometimes ask when i would teach i would ask my students to kind of just get them going i would walk in the classroom and say beatles or rolling stones just <laughs> like because it's fun it makes people less um Le less nervous in a classroom setting if they can talk about something that they know about and care about because often in classroom situations the students are like by definition they don't know what they're about to get taught and so you just ask them a question about something they do have a you know and i i'm like a i would just immediately hit the rolling stones button me too we're gonna we're gonna get along yeah <laughs> and then the other one is like you ask somebody matisse or picasso and, uh, you know, is it, and then it gets different because it's like, is it Matisse the whole career? Is it Picasso the whole career? Or is it one painting by Matisse? Because mm -hmm. I would take Picasso the whole career, but I would take one painting by Matisse. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I think I, I would have to agree with that. Matisse had some really high highs with the dancing paintings and the red room. And the red room, right? Like I would want to, I would want a room big enough to be, 
to have that painting, first of all. I agree with you. And then, um, but I think that painting to me surpasses, like you know, on an emotional level, anything by Picasso for me. But as a career, and I, it would be like, you know, Picasso is more like, you can't say like, you know, I don't really like Albert Einstein. Like, you know, like how people in art are able to say what they like and they dislike. But in physics, you don't be like, you know, t professor, I don't really like E equals MC squared. <laughs> you know, it'd be like, you know, I don't get Cezanne. I don't like Cezanne. <laughs> so like, that's the thing about the art business and the art world is like, you're really allowed to have an opinion when it's like almost offensive. You know, there are certain things that are beyond opinion. And if you're going to say like, I don't like Cezanne or whatever, you better be prepared to uh, uh, slot into that position in history, the artists that you do like, and then rewrite history and create a conjectural new history with those people in it. But the, you know, and, and the reality is, is that the art world, you know, something like hyperallergic gets a lot of attention, partly because like you get a lot of attention for saying outrageous and sensational things these days. And the world is sort of like clickbaitification. Like it, the more outrageous the headline. So like starting uh, an email with like, don't be thankful for Thanksgiving or whatever. That's kind of like what it is. And I think the art world is really sort of more like the rest of the world than it seems. But, you know, this is the stuff that gets attention. You know, there's also this kind of weird, you're right, I think correcting or policing the language around something is, it's an easy form of virtue signaling that doesn't actually change the underlying problem, but it allows everyone to see that you're, you know, like you're on the side of virtue. Yeah. yeah. And and correct it, like, like, and actually correcting the problem is really, any problem, right? Uh, any social problem problem is incredibly difficult whereas sort of like let's change the language around this is like pretty easy you just i don't know you get really loud and you know maybe it's also it, it, it it's a, the barrier to entry does not require intelligence to correct language it's like very simple and like actually coming up and like debating policies and like the nuances of policies and the foreseen and unforeseen circumstances of a of an initiative or an idea to put it into play and to work across the aisle, you know, with politics and stuff, this is sophisticated stuff. And it's sort of like a bit of a lost art in this new generation. And so, you know, it is what it is. But I'm not, I think I love the young people today. I really do. I think that they're pretty great. And I think that the, that, 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 that this, that the um, world and the kind of internet, uh, world that we like live in now is a much better world than the world that I grew up in because like people said like Jeff Poe Jeff Poe is a friend of mine he's the you know from Blum and Poe he just left he just split up with Tim Blum and you know Jeff, Blum and Poe is one of the most important galleries in the world and Jeff's a friend of mine and like the day that he did his podcast with Josh Bear I had dinner with him and he was saying like criticism is dead that's what he said and that was like the big thing that got quoted after the podcast. And at the time I was like, yeah, I think criticism is dead. And then I started to think about it a little more. And I realized that what Jeff was saying is, is that he preferred it back in the nineties and two thousands when, when big galleries could kind of understand and control criticism, because it was just coming out of like several newspapers. It was coming out of five art magazines and that was it. 
there were some newspapers, some magazines, and there were some like really erudite European magazines that had real art, art history criticism in it. And that was it. And so they could, you know, if you were, a, 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 it was it was so hierarchical that there really wasn't, uh, you know, there was no podcast, there was none of this. And so there's more actual legitimate art criticism today than there ever was. It's just that it can't be as easily manipulated by the major players. And I think that that's like an incredibly healthy thing. Like what we're doing right now, we would have had to have like a quarter of a million dollars to start a radio station or to buy fancy equipment to record. And we would, that Marshall would be some guy, he would never be able to do this on his own. There'd be a sound check person or whatever. You know, Justin Bieber can sit there and make a video of himself and go in front of his own mirror and become a rock star. And I think that that's a really healthy thing. And I think that what Jeff Poe meant to say is there's more art criticism today than ever. And it's just that it's confusing as hell. The world is way more confusing. And uh, objective truth is just, there's no such thing anymore. We can't even agree on simple facts. And now we're entering into a new world where you used to be able to trust a photograph or you, you know, you can't trust a photograph anymore because of like um, AI and stuff like that. So what, what, where, what, where is subjective reality? It's just really like on the run now. Um, I mean, where is objectivity? Where is objective truth? In fact, people cannot even agree on the facts. Um, and they're willing to say things that are unsupported or unsubstantiated and then you see that in the art world and you see it in, you know, politics. I, I think what you're saying, I, I agree with wholeheartedly. There are some aspects of this that are scary and overwhelming. There are some aspects that are super exciting, just like different channels to get even news politics. Like you feel like you you're not just listening to, you know, three corporate entities feeding you the same line. How, how do you think this is affecting the art world from your gallery perspective, though? Are you seeing more voices, more an array of different art, or is it still, has it changed much? I don't really think I have. I, I think it's healthy, first of all. And I think when people say it's radically different, I think it's some, I think it it, it looks different. You definitely, in the old days, like we're talking about barrier to entry and the hierarchical system of the old days, in order to be an art dealer, you had to sign a lease. And if you were an artist, you had to go with a gallery. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing, as we all are, that artists are able to take the reins of their own lives. And if there isn't an art dealer that comes along to like pat them on the back and tell them that they're good and that they want to show them, they don't need to just sit there in their studios and be desperate. They can, they, if they want to, they, they can have careers and they can have careers um, almost entirely independently of like this, this um, brick and mortar system. I think still the brick and mortar system is the one that has like a lot of the cachet attached to it. But I feel like um, one of the things I've noticed differently is, is that well, you know, sometimes I'll say something and I'll think of a reason why it's I can argue the other way. Like I was going to say that I don't really have as many long abiding relationships with collectors as I used to. That a lot of my transactions are being done um, on the Internet with people that I know much less well than I used to. 
then as I was saying that, I realized that the reason for that is, is that because as I'm getting much older, my, my cohorts, my generation, they're aging out of collecting. So I'm like less likely to be palling around with some 37 year old collector who's like in the prime of his collecting years. Because hmm. um, so, my friends are all kind of like calling me up and going, I'm selling, you know, I'm downsizing. So, you know, it is what it is. And there's always like another side to it. But I think I think it's healthy that um, if you're a if you're a recording artist, you can make your own single. You can make your own album. If you're an artist, you can produce your own catalogs. You can have your own. You can be uh, an artist and uh, dip into this world of art criticism the way that you guys are, uh, that you, Marshall and Dina, like you're artists, but you are doing this thing with like creating content. I think it's very healthy. And I think that there's a tremendous amount of interesting content. There's more today than ever. Um, I do think that sometimes it's uh, shocking to me, even though I do like not having to talk to collectors, that I'll make transactions and I never really meet these people. Uh, and and I don't really know who they are. And we, you know, we, we just have like a, a few inner, you know, we just have a few exchanges on the internet or whatever. But in some ways I like that because it can be very aggravating to, to be around people for me. <laughs> you, you still think there is like a, a big crop of like that 37 year old collector you're saying that are still getting interested in going to galleries and buying the artwork. Do you, do you feel that's getting a Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that those people often, unfortunately, I think that one of the good questions that no, we should have it's sort of a Warholian question. But if I never would have believed 30 years ago, if you had told me that people would spend thousands, if not millions of dollars with having not seen the artwork, I wouldn't have believed it. Hmm. And I think that the system of looking at a JPEG the whole JPEGification and like it used to be slides, you'd hold up these slides and you'd evaluate the artists. You'd get this thing in the mail and you'd go like, okay, next, next. And there'd be like a self-addressed stamp envelope. So there was always that awful mediation of technology because it used to be slides and slides were worse than anything else. Nobody had a projector. Like you were supposed to be looking at these things in projectors, right? <laughs> in my opinion, the carousel projector is one of the greatest inventions that ever existed. Yeah. They never break. They're fantastic. I want to buy one. I, I lost my other one. You're shattering my illusion. I, I pictured you guys in a dark room with a giant and you're just yeah. to a light bulb. This is <laughs> right. And you had a guy in the back, like in art history, like going next two slides, please. No, but it isn't like that. So it isn't like the uh, technology just came along and changed things entirely. There always was the four by five in the slide. But the question is, what sort of art and what sort of artist trajectory is favored by a system that has gone largely to looking at images on computers and on cell phones. What kind of art does that favor? And Warhol said, you know, he wasn't interested in what his paintings looked like in person. He wanted to, he wanted them to look good when they were reproduced in magazines. And mm -hmm. so what's that question? It begs the question of what kind of art does well and very subtle art is going very subtle and very like, art that really requires your experience of being in front of it 
that's going to be less likely to be successful in big, large gestures, um, installations, things that you can really photograph easily and then put online or things that, you know, look good that are graphic. Um, honestly, though, like in, I mean, maybe I'm like just defending my own work, but like, I feel like I wouldn't have been able to like, you know, I paint these miniatures that look terrible when, you know, like, like even when blown up to four by five, right. That, that uh, never mind a projector. Like I, um, and I remember like, you know, like I kind of started all this in the days of like slide portfolios. Right. Um, and um, and like, I feel like there's more room for small work. There's more room for work because you're right. More people are buying without seeing it. And sometimes they just, you know, like stuff that looks good on not just a screen, but like an iPhone. And sometimes it's graphic. Sometimes it's tiny. But um, I feel like overall things are, more, things are more like I feel like I wouldn't have been able to survive if it wasn't for all no, of that. Your work is a really good example because if you decide to like look at your work because of zooming in and being able to look, and if you are good at like making sure that the quality of the original photography that went into your presence on Instagram or your presence on a website, you can really drill in to an artist's life and career and see the work in context and see the work, you know, like for instance, like with your work or somebody else I was looking at, they had it in their hand, like on, on their website or whatever, to show, to show the scale. Um, just to show that it's small, small enough to be able to hold in your hand. And if it's, you know, if it's really big, I don't know, you stand next to it or something, or you, you know, the, and that way people can see that it's big enough to be able, so it's still not as good as seeing it in real life, right? Like, not as good, but it, it does, it, you're right, that work that is sort of like at the margins scale wise, um, uh, uh, can be made very, very interesting and very impactful and, and compelling through the internet, like through images, through like these images on your computer. I, I find I find that what you're saying, I agree with totally, but I can't help but to think there's a bit of a loss. Like I'm thinking about maybe Surratt's drawings, those really subtle kind of moody drawings. Amazing ones where he uses like the tooth of the paper Totally. Right. And, and are we going to, are we just deprioritizing those and, and for the sake of poppy, more graphic work, do you feel like that will get, I don't know, deprioritized lower down on algorithms or whatever. And that's a bit of a loss, right? <laughs> well, I guess there's always like different generations create winners and losers and whatever, but I think it's a pretty great time. I'm, you know, I, I personally, the art fair thing is a whole nother subject, which we haven't gone to yet or whatever, art fairs, that experience and sort of like the death of the one person show as like the primary experience of seeing art. Like I'd like to think of, I have like a metaphor where the one person show is like the vinyl album, right? <laughs> it's like the vinyl album. No. And like the first the the first chink in the armor of like the, the 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 vinyl album was when turntables you could raise the stylus with a you could cue the stylus up with a little crank yes so you could actually pick the song on the album that you liked so that was like the first then eventually it was like CDs and then it was like just buying songs 
And I think of like just buying a song on iTunes is kind of like the art fair. Uh, uh, is it buying a test song on iTunes or is that, or is it like Spotify or Pandora where it just streams? Well, you're and beyond me now. You're beyond me. Cause I don't even really know what those things are. I mean, oh my, uh, okay. Okay. John Spotify will change it. will change your list. It's, it's the death of something in the music industry, but you just pick a song you like. And it, I mean, A, it has everything, so you can listen to anything you want. But B, if you can just pick something, I, I don't know, one of my kids has been really into like Woody Guthrie recently. Yeah. And, you know, he'll pick a Woody Guthrie song and then it'll play Arlo Guthrie and then it'll play, I don't know, like the uh, like so some these algorithms that sort of has, Yes. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. But I think that the, you know, when you would get an album, like when you were in ninth grade, and you would spend all this money, like, yeah. getting the album, you'd lie on your bed, reading the looking at the cover of the album, like whether it was King Crimson's like, these amazing album art, and I love album art so much. And that's that's lost. And, you know, like the Yes cover by like, um, is it Frazetta? And you know, just so I just for me growing up, uh, the music and the album itself and reading the liner notes and listening to the music were all part of like the experience. And so I think that it's good. It's fine. You know, like uh, Alexa, play Blow by Blow by Jeff Beck. But like if you do that, you're basically just reconfirming your own values and you're not being forced to listen to th other songs that you might find even more interesting or equally interesting because you've decided who you are and what you like. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And, and you see that, I, I think we lost the analogy a little bit as going to an art fair and just seeing the hits one after another. Is that, and, They're and not even the hits. <laughs> I mean, first of all, when, in the beginning of the art fairs, the art, the artists themselves look down upon being asked to make a painting or to even put a painting in an art show in an art in an art fair it was like basically where art dealers would bring what they couldn't sell from their shows it was like the also ran art and then eventually it became obvious that the most important thing in the world was to put a very good very good example of your work in these art fairs and so another question that you know this is more for like artist answer but Art, artists today are like, they're like, they're in their studios and they're like producing product. And when you talk to an artist, they're especially, you know, obviously the ones that are in play and that have a lot of interest in their work, I feel like they're, they're, they're moving from one project to the next. And they're like, now I'm making the two paintings for Basel. And now I'm making the show for, you know, Kiel in West, in Germany or, and the question is, is what, what, what does that sort of, when you know you have a show coming up and you feel this pressure to perform, what is that like for an artist versus being an artist in their studio with no shows coming up, no prospects for selling work, no real prospects for having your work even seen? Um, how does that change the development of the artists? Um, because as the old timers will tell you, no one thought about showing when they were in their 20s and 30s. It was like you didn't you wouldn't get a show until you were in your 40s or 50s, you know, back in the back in the 50s and whatever. And so now it's like if you don't make it by the time you're 30. You know, it's like 
a completely different system that's flipped on its head where everyone is like painting product or making product for this, this like huge mall that opens its mouth and just consumes everything that gets put into it. But not everyone. And like, I, I, I do some of that, right? Like, like I've got, you know, it's, it's one show and another show and you know, the, but um, my sister, who's a really, really good painter. So she spent five years on a bot, you know, it's one body of work and, you know, it's not stuff that translates well online, but when you, when you saw it, it was the kind of stuff that couldn't be done if she had those constant deadlines, right? Like if she, you know, the, um, like it was something that it needed five years and she took five years and it was absolutely gorgeous. And it's not, it's not really the way the art world operates, but it was when I saw it, it was like, okay, this is real art. And in a way, a lot of the stuff I do feels like it's a constant stream of studies Right. And I love it. Like, like I also love what I do. And like, like that level of attention span, I feel like, I feel like I I've lost it personally, like, like, and I make stuff all the time, but I haven't. And part of it, like I haven't had the chance to spend five years on anything for, but maybe I couldn't. Well, maybe it's like a good exercise. Like, you know, um, I've talked to certain painters who are very quick and ones that take a long time. And I feel like my best advice for someone who takes a, a long time is to try making something quick and for the artist who like works intensely long on something to try making something that's faster. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that the, 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 the biggest problem with life is uh, in terms of like being, is like not getting stuck. Like we were talking about being like the type of person who gets older and gets better. I think it's important as an art dealer or as an artist to kind of wake up in the morning and have that day not um, be defined by, the weight of your entire career and what you perceive to be who you are. And so like, I, I would often say like that there are these artists that achieve a certain amount of fame and they, they wake up in the morning and they're like, it's time to make one of my paintings. This is what I do. I know what I do and I will just execute this today and to wake up and go like, I don't even really know who I am and kind of say, okay, what am I going to be today? Who am I going to be? And that allows you to, you know, get out of your to get out of that 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 rut uh, of, of being like uh, a greatest hits person or whatever but you know so in your case dean i would say like maybe you should try to make like an opus like you should try to make like what you'd perceive to be your masterpiece because in your work it's sort of more continuous it's like your life and your art are uh almost intertwined it's like the daily doing of the work is as much the art as the actual art itself. It's like the verb of life, like life is a verb, not a noun. And, and so I kind of like, I sort of more gravitate towards your kind of art making where it's just like you do it every day. And like the term religion or religiousness just means repetition. Like you do something every day. That's what religiousness is. And that's my religion is just to keep doing the same thing and to keep doing something that I love doing. And I think that's good for artists as well. Things that turn out to be great art are almost like things that just happen. And uh, I mean, obviously that that's like an easily in, an indefensible statement, but there is something to be said for uh, imagining what you're doing as being not artifice at all, but reality. Like that these things, these are these objects and someone's going to put a price on them and you're going to sell them and they are what they are. They're like, these these art objects 
But if you think of your making nature or you're making something that's meant to compete with nature as a thing in itself, you're a human being, you made it. And if you made it, it's part of nature. So that dichotomy between art and life is probably, you know, too strong a dichotomy. Uh, and that it's just like life is something that happens in the, in like I like to say, life is a verb. It's not a noun. Hmm. Something to compete with nature. What what do you, what exactly do you mean? Not by even it? compete with nature, but just to like be nature. Like it is nature. It just seems like it always existed. You're not even sure how it came to be or why it came to be. Um, but having said that, I can all I I'm fully aware of the fact that you know artists in a very uh, self conscious way can make great art. You don't have to like just be sitting there like pretending that you're not making great art to make great art. But it it can be interesting, I think, for an artist to to change it up, you know, to change up their approach to their own work, especially as they get older and they're so confident as to what their work already is. What does it make you feel like? It makes me feel like um like I feel like Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. <laughs> what I feel like. I feel like it's the most undignified thing that I have ever experienced in my life is like working in a booth at an, at an art fair. Wow. Um, But no, I, I actually enjoy it. I don't dislike it at all. I love, especially, you know, I love Miami because the people are dressed so crazy. And I, like I said, I didn't go into art history because I do like talking to people. Um, I don't love people, but I, I'm able to like, you know, get over, I don't really, I do like to have like a lot of time away from people, but um, I don't really feel like Willie Loman, but like if you're doing really well and then it feels great. And if you're not doing so well, it can feel um, very uh, crushing. Um, but I don't, I, the, the subject of art fairs, you know, the bigger question gets back to the thing about capitalism. And I feel like the art fairs, I use, I, I tend to turn words into other words by saying A-T-I-O-N. So I always talk about the art verification of the art world. And so the art verification of the art world, and my daughter told me I'm not allowed to use the word plantation system anymore because it's like so loaded with true suffering and like what an art dealer is actually uh, experiencing at an art fair is not exactly what happening on a real plantation, but the art fair owners and the art fair organizers are like these plantation owners, in my opinion. And we as art dealers are like, and the artists are feeding this uh, huge system that's like, like a, it's like a huge tourism mecca for collectors uh, who are people who, you know, otherwise could not go to Berlin and know 50 people. They would like sit in their hotel and not know where to go except for the museum. And they created this environment where everybody knows everybody and they're like, that's like going to camp. And uh, so it's like going to camp, but it's very, it's like you're set, it's like seventh grade, you know, like Meryl, it's like, I always thought that when I was going to get out of college, like life was going to be like being like an adult. <laughs> and then I discovered once I got into the art world that it was like being in seventh grade. <laughs> and so the art, the art bears just bring that home for you. That, uh, um, uh, and they also bring home the idea that you're working and you're toiling and many people are benefiting from the system and many people are not. And the people who are not benefiting from it are still participating. And 
Uh, it's unfortunate that, um, and I think it's being attempted, but that, uh, that art dealers and artists aren't coming up with ways to be more cooperative with one another. And so in that, to that end, you know, I was part of this group called Seven, which did fairs in Miami for a few years in a row. And it was like seven art dealers it was Pierogi and Hales and Postmasters and Winkleman um, and Bravin Lee and PPOW. And we would like rent a space and put on an art fair in our own space. And we, we also got away from, you know, I really hate the one thing about the art fairs that I can't stand is like the boothiness, like boothiness, like I, we would just hang them in a Kunsthal fashion so that your work was hanging uh, next to work from the other galleries that were participating in this thing. So these little ice cube tray, you know, the ice cube tray mentality of these little booth spaces just to me is like depressing. And of oh. course, some of the galleries have, you know, there have been a lot of count. There have been a lot of initiatives to counteract that, like by doing one person shows at these galleries, you know, at these art fairs and stuff. So look, I go to the art fairs. I enjoy going to them. I'm not going to go to Miami this year. I'm just kind of like over Florida. I don't want to spend money in Florida. I don't want to go to Florida. I, I, Florida is dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to uh, go back to when you're, when you were in that room looking at slides over and over again, like yeah. as a, a gallerist, what are you looking for? And by the way, is your Instagram sweet Marshall Jones? Is that you? Yeah. Okay. I'm just, cause I'm like, I know Dean is work and I didn't know your work. And then I realized I'm just going to have a look at it here. So I know who I'm talking to. <laughs> it's good. You're good. <laughs> I like this you know, kind of reminds me a little bit of like, like Franz Halls meets Robert Henry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's high praise, but I got to say. I, I, right I, here, like, that's me, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's me. But uh, what what's on my Instagram? This is actually very relevant to what we're talking about. Is extremely censored. It's just Instagram content, so it's just. I think it's a very dumbed down version of things that I don't do as well. But <laughs> because the algorithm doesn't want to see my work, it doesn't, and it and it also is fairly. You know, if I paint figuratively, if there's a nude or something, that's not going to go. I like this the... nun with a uh, gun. <laughs> no, I think they're doing a good job. I find it compelling. I mean, I always like to see stop action art getting made. I think it's beautiful and interesting. Um, and I think it really is very, uh, you know, we're talking about the means of production that artists have today. Being able to show, like, I'm watching you, like, make this guy in a hat or whatever, that's very really cool. I mean, it's like today, the word content, right? It's like we're content producers. We are entertainers in a way, and we're in the cultural space, and we're creating entertainment. And the objects are like the reason why we're all here. But the the these like little looks almost looks like like Churchill. This this one coming up. Well, I think it's like it's hard because it's like. In terms of what you're saying, like painting a quick portrait, I, I've practiced that. I'm very good at it. And that's something that can just go on the internet and, and it works on Instagram. But you like, like, a, are you like a Vincent Desiderio? Do you like Vincent Desiderio? Yeah, he's cool. Yeah. We teach yeah. at the same school. He's great. So when I met, when I met Karen, my wife, you know, I met her sort of in the art world and I, I was at the Chicago art fair and I saw her. 
and uh, I like she was working at Langenhauer and I was delivering a Christo to the gallery and I watched them sell the bring the Christo that I was bringing in because they thought I was an art handler. They thought that I was just the art handler. So they sold it to the to the booth across from them. I made like twenty five hundred bucks and I watched them make like ten thousand bucks. And so I saw Karen, I was looking at my wife, my future wife, and I was like, she's cute. So then I get back to New York and I saw her at an art, an art opening. And then long story short, I put her in a cab, like I talked to her on the street and I put her in a cab. And then this girl that I was with at the time said to me, she probably thinks that I'm your girlfriend. So I ran back to the cab and opened the door to the cab on house and <laughs> And I said, hey, she wants you to know she's not my girlfriend. And so she said, she wants me to know. And I said, I want you to know. So then <laughs> Karen called Art Forum and tried to figure out who I was and talked to this friend of mine there, Charles Guarino, and he knew who he figured out who I was. And he calls me up and he goes, do you know Karen Bravin? I'm like, no, I have no idea who that is. And he goes, did you talk to a girl on the street? And I go, yeah, I did. He goes, well, here's your phone number. You got the green light. <laughs> so when I was saying all these bad things about art forum. Um, see, see, we're actually your version of Tinder. Like the, yeah, um... right. that's like old fashioned Tinder. Like they, I was match made. I was like Tinderized by, uh, by uh, uh, art forum. <laughs> so I don't know where that came from, but we were talking about, um, I don't know why I just saw, thought of that funny story, but. Uh, yeah. I think we're uh, we briefly mentioned uh, mentioned Vincent Desiderio. Oh, okay. So then I so then I she was working at this gallery and I go to the gallery and I like um I'm like I want to buy this Vincent Desiderio from her for <laughs> 5200 bucks and she's like you can't buy it there's a waiting list. And I had already had like a date or two with her and so then like she bumped me up in the waiting list so I married her. <laughs> so, that's like, so I own this Vincent Desiderio and I, like I bought from her and I love this painting it's like these little it reminds me of like a Thomas Aikens painting of little kids playing with their toys and so I really really love this painting and and that I don't know that brings to another subject but how art and life how how when you lead a life in the art world or you lead a life where you're not just going to a museum and even going to a museum is an experiential thing, but like that art object, that Vincent Desiderio is more than a Vincent Desiderio to me. It's about my life. It's about my kids existing. It's about my wife and my life. And so like, that's the beauty of, of a life led in art that these gorgeous things and these interesting things on their own become even more rich when you sort of, understand their relationship to the events around them i guess that was a beautiful earnest way of putting it uh, well, thank you very much thank you so does the, does the art world still you've you've been in the art world for ages like you like you've been there for ages you know everyone does it i don't bring... know everyone i think i used to know everyone but i know i don't know everyone anymore I, i'm i'm like post knowing everyone um does it um does it still bring you joy uh, yeah, I do. I think it, it brings me joy. I mean, you know, like, it, like yeah, I like it. I kind of carved it out the way that I want it to be. Uh, for instance, I'll give you an example of that. Like COVID for so many people was like, obviously, if you died, it wasn't the greatest thing. But if you lived through it and you like just stopped going to work like I did, even though I had to keep paying rent, it opened my eyes. And, uh, you know, we were talking about the Willie Loman thing and 
I, I had sort of like settled into being like an aging shopkeeper and COVID made me realize that I, I could live my life in a different way. And so I slowly but surely worked my way back into the idea of opening up every day or at least opening up some of the time. And it wasn't like the greatest thing for the reputation of Robin Lee programs that you would go there and the lights would be off and it would be like a Wednesday uh, in the middle of the day. But what I realized is I did not anymore want to um, to schedule 12 months out of the year. I didn't want to be responsible for doing shows that I didn't really love doing. And so in the last several months, Karen and I have um, reached out to art dealers, some of which don't have galleries in New York, and in some cases, some that do. And we've been renting out months of the year of the gallery. And so that what the effect of that is, is that I only have to be responsible. I'm responsible for many fewer shows. Karen and I don't have to think of doing 10 or 10 shows a year and, you know, take them up, put them down like five Saturdays, four days to take it down to, and to put it up. And that, that hamster wheel is like a horrible way to live. And I would, I think that that's just that that system exists because art galleries are so, you know, with the cost of the space and the cost of employees. So I have a relative, Karen and I, we have a relatively cheap rent and we have no employees. And one of the things I hated about being like a big gallery was like becoming an arbitrator for some argument between like the art handler and like the registrar. I hated doing human resources. I hated people's petty problems. I hate people's problems in general. Um, but except my, my I, I don't even like my own problems, but I really love the fact that now I'm scheduling and I don't really have something that I'm doing. I have a few things in this. I'm doing a show with you, Dean. Like I'm doing a group show that I'm really interested in doing. It's going to be, you know, on miniatures. I love miniatures. I love the idea of the miniature and miniaturization. I love Jonathan Swift. I love the word Lilliputian. We're doing the show. Well, uh, and then we're doing a two-person show with these two painters that I love. One is from LA named Bob Gunderman. And he's, he's, uh, this is the advertising section of the uh, podcast. So that he's, but, but this is really like, I'm looking forward to doing this show with Bob Gunderman, who is like the former owner of Acme Gallery. And so he, I do think that uh, art dealers who, become, who are artists and artists who become art dealers are a very interesting group of people. And I really do admire them. And I think they have a really interesting take on art. And I really do. They might not be always like the most sophisticated business people on earth, but I really do like artist run galleries. And in the case of Bob Gunderman, he was always an artist. He just had a really cool gallery called Acme. And then before that it was called Food House. And I'm going to pair his work with this other painter um, named um, Tracy Grayson, who was like around for a long time as well, like Bob. And so they're like older guys like me. And I sort of am enjoying to show that generation of artists. They're not, they're really well, they're well respected and beloved, but they don't have like these huge careers. And I'm just going to love doing that show, just like doing the project room with you and these other artists working with miniaturization. And so then like after that, I kind of have it scheduled with these dealer friends of mine. I can't say what's going on yet because it's not written in stone, but I've 
been very picky. Carrie and I are very picky about who we're going to let take over the space. And so the the overall effect of that is like it helps us in so many different ways. We don't have to put our we don't have to like do shows that we're not necessarily deeply passionate about. It also gives us time to kind of re-energize ourselves, to travel, to go around during the day and see shows. And so like, hopefully if this works out, ideally after February or March, I won't really have anything to do until the fall when I do a Charlie Ritchie show. Um, who, whose work you would really, I think, really like. Um, I, I love, I love a sketchbooks. Uh, yeah. So I think like, that might have been actually how I first heard of your gallery. It was his sketchbooks. Uh, right. He's like, he's like a guy, you know, if I, I would always say like, if I, if my house was on fire, I would grab his work, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I just love working with him. And when I look at going back to maybe what we were originally talking about, of like the artist dealer relationship, you know, sometimes that relationship is like a brother or a sister. Sometimes like you're like a parent. Um, and having had kids, I think it made me a better person. It made me a more patient person. And being, you know, and, and using the metaphor of like these familial relationships can be a mistake because they're just, you're just doing business with them. But I, I feel like, Charlie is like a brother to me and he's like someone I look up to. Um, and uh, that is one of you, know, you said, do I still enjoy being an art dealer? I can't imagine a life without having like Charlie Ritchie as my friend and showing his work. And if tomorrow he came to me and said, you know, I'm joining this other gallery, I'd be like, thank God. I mean, I, I hope you, if it was a good gallery, I would love that. Another example of that, same type of thing as like Philip Ackerman. I show Philip Ackerman for years and years. He's like a brother to me. And having said right. that, when I was really quiet, uh, when Robin Lee got really quiet, I knew that Philip needed a show in New York. And I knew that I was no longer the gallery that could do a good job for showing him. So I went to Derek Eller and I said, Derek, do you want it? You know, I know you've always liked Philip's work. Why don't you show him? Right. And so, um, I still feel like I have like a business relationship with Philip and a great friendship is like a, a dear brother. But at the same time, I, I think it's important that if you love something, <laughs> you know, if you love something, set it free in a way. And that like, if it's meant to be, it'll come back to you. And so when I was much younger and I had artists that were tormenting me and torturing me about leaving the gallery and then the art dealers are constantly, I just talked to one the other day and, and, and this dealer is like going like, I'm going to move to my, my best selling artist wants me to move to Tribeca. And I'm like, you know, you're going to move to Tribeca. And then if, if the right gallery comes along, they're just going to leave you anyway. And it's like when you're in like a dysfunctional relationship with someone and you think that you can like win them back by taking their abuse, it's stupid. Like just tell them, show them the door. And if they don't want to leave, they won't leave. And if they want to stay, they'll stay. But if you have a relationship where they're being mean to you or you're being mean to them, say goodbye, say goodbye to it or fix it, you know, but don't live in a situation where you like I lived for years with this like sort of 
Damocles? Is that how you say it? I think it's Damocles. <laughs> yeah. You know, hanging over my head that this artist was going to leave me. Or like in his example, I can say names. I'll tell you name names. When I, Gordy, Bravin, and Lee, you know, we were like basically James Sienna was like our bread and butter artist. And, Char and then Chuck Close, like basically made Pace steal him away. And he got stolen away. And then, of course, his career like went into the dumper at Pace because they don't give a shit about anything. And um, especially if you stop selling. Oh. But what it did to us is it really just, I mean, I'm not saying that's why we closed Gourney, Bravin and Lee, but it certainly was something where we had to like, look, take a, do a gut check and say, what do we do now? You know, we, we, we've lost the uh, artist that was like our best seller. And so that is the art business that no matter where you are, you can be, um very high up in the food chain or you can be very low on the food chain but unless you're hauser and worth you know which is basically like i don't know what would be the metaphor of hauser and worth they're like at the top of the food chain along with you know and i mean there's a lot of great galleries and i don't think i think hauser and worth is actually a beautifully run gallery when I've had to transact things with them because i make these rugs and i have to work with some of these galleries that are like the high octane galleries I consider Hauser and Worth to be one of the most uh, considerate and thoughtful and compassionate uh, type gallery to work with from my standpoint. I've worked with other galleries that are like horrible to work with um, and just dismiss it. So I'm not saying that just because they're really big, they're bad, but you're going to lose your artists. And if you're not prepared to live that life where you lose your artists you're, you are going to live a life of disappointment. And so you need to calibrate your expectations to meet the realities of what your life is. And so you need to say, yes, they're going to leave. And when they do, uh, like, for instance, I, I have a long relationship with Jonathan Lasker. He's like a brother to me, like a bit of an older brother. And when I was at Tibor Dinaj and he left, I was just, I was just like destroyed. I was like, I couldn't, I just said, so how do I get out of bed? And then I thought to myself, I wanted to kill him. You know, I wanted to kill him. And, and he made me like, he, he made me go to a restaurant just like in what's that movie where he, you know, like you go to the restaurant so that you don't, it, so you can't like, you know, jump across the table and kill the person. Oh yeah. <laughs> that movie, uh, the, Squire. I mean, the movie about the, the sports agent. Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire. Yeah, it was like he gets fired in the restaurant. He goes, you invited me to the restaurant. I'm not going to make a scene, right? So, But then Jonathan and I, I said to myself, okay, I will become one of Jonathan's most important secondary market art dealers. And I buy and sell Jonathan Lasker's to this day, all the time. And I'm constantly doing business. And when his dealers don't even have work, sometimes I'm the one who does have the work. So you have to like decide to be not disappointed by the life you've chosen to lead. And if you think you're not going to get artists stolen away from you, you are wrong. And if you are an artist and you don't expect that a dealer might not want you anymore or whatever, get out of that relationship, find something better, find it. I would always advise, you know, I think that everyone always wants the bigger gallery when you're an art, when you're an artist, you want the ground floor gallery and you get, in a way, I think those things are not important. If the dealer loves your work and they're paying you, 
and they're not, and they're like thinking about you all the time. That's a good relationship. And be careful about leaving that relationship for the dealer that's going to offer you the catalog or the ground floor space or like getting your work into Basel or whatever it is. Those are important things. And I might advise that artist to leave that situation and to, to be like maybe a smaller fish in a bigger pond. But having someone who passionately cares about your work and can talk about your work and can talk to you about your work and cares about your life and your family and your world like a like a person who cares about you and loves you, that's valuable in life. And that's probably part of um, business acumen that isn't talked about mm-hmm. enough. That loyalty yeah. is a very, very important characteristic uh, of, of somebody that you want to be around. Hey, John, um, you actually, so you simultaneously um, seem like you know, you, you still seem like you know everyone, or at least you know, like, a lot of them, right? I still know them, but they don't know me. Yes. most of, So most of the people listening to this are artists. A lot of them are artists looking for galleries. Something that would have, you also seem like you are someone who has, you know, guts and don't necessarily care what people think of you. Something that would have helped me when I was in my 20s um, and stumbling around New York looking for a place to show. And um, that's when I think maybe especially as a female in your 20s, you just stumble onto every single bad actor there is. And you kind of, um, so I, back then, I wish someone kind of gave me a warning. Like I wish someone was, you know, because later talking to some of the other artists at those galleries, they're like, oh yeah, yeah. He, you know, does this all the time. Of course, of course they're going to lose your work and then they're not going to pay you for it. And then they're going to blame someone else. And, you know, that, um, but, um, is there anyone you wouldn't, you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe it's too much pressure on you, but is there anyone you really wouldn't recommend artists work with? Or conversely, who are the good players? <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think I want to get into like okay. well, defaming somebody, even if it's true. Okay, um, how about the good ones then? No, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, honestly, I don't know a lot of the galleries. I know who my friends are. I mean, I, I definitely, and even sometimes you think you know your friends and then you find out that, that they, you know, sometimes people, they, 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 like if they have an art gallery, the art gallery becomes keeping the gallery's doors open, starts to, it it, they start to compromise their values in order to keep the gallery alive. And so they might not start out um, saying to themselves, I'm going to open an art gallery and then I'm not going to pay my artists. It's not like in the mission statement for the gallery, but some of these dealers, they start to rob Peter to pay Paul. And so um, I could always advise artists on how to get paid, um, you know, like versus not getting paid. And it's always about um, having like a a Gandhi-esque type of patience, but also a Siddhartha-like insistence, you know, to, to, to get what is yours and what you're owed and, and, you made the art and you need to, so I don't think that just getting paid is the most important thing, but I I mean, there are a lot, there are bad actors and like what you're interesting that you said, like by being like a straight guy in the art world, I faced um, some of the same situations that women face in, in life, like where you don't realize that the person is interested in you romantically and they're not interested in buying art from you, or they're not interested in anything more than something that you're not interested in. 
And so that has always given me a, a, a very interesting insight into the cliched situation of a, a woman artist dealing with like a lecherous art art dealer or whatever, because I sort of lived in that situation here and there, um, where I'm trying to bring the conversation back to what I'm trying to accomplish. And there's not, that's not really what the interest was originally, but yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say, I mean, I think that if, if, you know, sometimes I've had these conversations with artists and uh, many, and they're like, well, I worked with the dealer for like five, six, seven years. And then I ended up getting owed $10,000 at the end that I never got. And I would say to them, like, well, you, you're just being disappointed for no reason. Because like the only reason you're disappointed is because you think this is not that big a deal. Like you either get that money or you don't, but that's like a little tiny tax. There's always the situation of like the dealer who owes the artist like $200,000. And that's like a different story. But I would recommend that sometimes like if you really don't like, you really feel suspicious of an art dealer, Google what a UCC one is. And it's like a thing that you file like, you know, you, you know, when you write consignment agreements with each other, like the way we do, we write these consignment agreements, we sign them and the, the government doesn't think of them as consignments. They, it's not legal. The only thing that's a really true legal consignment is a uniform, a UCC one document that you file with the state of New York. And that means that if you, that puts teeth into your, your real consignment, it's a real consignment. And mm -hmm. so there are many ways that, um, uh, you know, but if you get into the point where you're like going up against them in, in a court of law, it, it, I hope you're I hope you are owed like many hundreds of thousands of dollars because you can spend eighty thousand dollars in like ten minutes with lawyers. So, but having said that, I think that you want I think it's very valuable to to find um, people who uh, seem to understand your work and understand you and care about. You. And surround yourself, whether you're an artist or a person just as in your civilian life, just surround yourself with people who care about you and are considerate to you and polite. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm like out of the habit of making studio visits to a large extent. Um, but I think the studio visit is an amazing experience for both the dealer and for the artist if they, they you know, if they like each other. And um I love, you know, I love the artists. I love so many of the artists The the examples of situations with artists that are really, really negative in my background are very few. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to say who they are or whatever, but I've mostly had really great relationships with artists. And I really love that. I, I love learning how the art is made. Um, as an example, I made a rug with Christopher Wool. I made three rugs with Christopher Wool. Oh, cool. I, I had the luxury of like meeting Christopher and I, I really only knew him as like this guy who made these paintings that said words and then later had these like Rorschachs and whatever. And I didn't really even understand how his work was made. And because I had to make this rug with him, I got to really see how he made his work. And I developed a real respect that many people would not understand had they not really been able to get involved in his artistic process. And interestingly, Christopher Wool, one of the rock stars of the art world, there were um, artists who would just basically send me a JPEG and say, okay, go make the rug. And Christopher Wool, like, spent two days at the gallery 
Wow. Permutating and going, what if we try this? What if we try this? And like he showed up on, you know, he had his bike helmet with him. He'd ridden here from the East Village. I'm like, do you know how many people are relying on you for their like life? You can't ride a bicycle. <laughs> yeah, take a you gap. Get killed. <laughs> no, but he's such a lovely guy. I mean, not just a lovely guy, but he's the type of guy who honestly, he there's no detail in his work that is not considered. And so like what I love to say about someone like a Jonathan Lasker or a Christopher Wall is if you say, hey, Christopher, how you doing? He's going to stop and think about that because he is so used to like considering every detail of his work that even a simple question like he, there's no boilerplate in, in great artists. There's no boilerplate. They're like every that's what I love about like. Who's that guy on uh, shows with Betty Cunningham? He just died. He's like the realist. Pearlstein. Pearlstein. You're so good. You can finish my, you can be like my wife. You're so good at remembering, <laughs> remembering what I can't remember. You could be my wife. Um, Philip Pearlstein, like every detail of a Philip Pearlstein painting, like you think there's the figure and that the figure should be like the thing you work on the most. But he probably spent 10 hours working on the quilt or he spent 10 hours working on the you know the hobby horse in the background of a painting and that there he doesn't see any part of the painting as being less or more important and a guy yeah. like great artists those are the kinds of artists i love I and mean, then, and then for him that sort of like turns into a whole conceptual thing in spite of him because it's like who's painting the fibers on the rug as much as the portrait of a face you know and it just it's sort of like this whole deprioritized vision he looks through the world through like yeah, i love that thing. i love that or, or like you know but there are a lot of great artists i mean i think that if you look at like sergeant's one of the great artists he did it's like the figure it's like the figure in the dress yep it, it, it's not about those other things but that so that's just a different way to look at it totally. um that's okay. that. i like his work too i like sergeant um, what do you know, you've been doing this for longer than most people could possibly, you know, like, like survive and what seems like a really, really hard business to be in. What do you look for? I always make a joke. They can say, what's your secret? And I go, I don't, I just don't lose my keys. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. You, you don't lose your keys, but you know, like the, you could, like you come back to the gallery every day, but you, you still look at new work. You still keep in touch with the artists that you've had. I do. Years. I do a little less, you know, I'm a little, I've slowed down. Like I don't do as many studio visits as I yeah. used to. I, but I, I love seeing new stuff. I think that having talked about Instagram and social media and stuff, I think it's been a fantastic way to, um, you know, avoid going outside, which I cannot stand doing. I just find New York City, just going outside, I just immediately get aggravated by one thing or the other. I sort of have a little bit of dysphonia. That's another thing I'm agreeing with you on, John. I just don't <laughs> want to go outside anymore. And No, I, okay, I disagree. Scary. I disagree with you both, by the way. I, I don't even live in New York. I love it. Whenever I'm well, that's there. That's because I... you live in Boston. If you went outside, there'd be no place to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like going tonight. I'm going to see a film festival of like, is it Morricone? I'm going. Wait, what am I seeing tonight? I'm going. You know, like to. I'm going to a museum of modern art film thing or whatever. So um, that's the beauty. Like, I love New York. I I would say, even though I kind of hate going outside, I always say when you're like you're when you're out of New York, you're out of town. But 
I I would like to be like upstate. I would like to be my, I wouldn't want to be in Boston for God's sake, but I would like to have a house <laughs> upstate, upstate and then come back and like really beloved, like love New York the way that I used to love it. Um, and I think in order to love something, you have to leave it for a while. And then you come back and you're like, oh, look at the trash. I love that trash. <laughs> Listen to those those fucking dunk, dump trucks backing up. That is the greatest sound. At, at four in the morning. Boop, boop. <laughs> you know, maybe, so maybe if you love something, it has to let you go for a while also, right? Because yeah, New York, like if you holiday. live there, if you live there, it doesn't really let, let go of you, right? Like it just- No, you have gets... kids or whatever, right? And like your great dream as a parent is that your kid each has his own room, Right. You don't want uh, to yeah, look. yeah. No, right. Um, it, yes. Uh, me and my sister only stopped wanting to kill each other. Really, once we stopped sharing a bunk bed. So then what happens? Like you get married, and you don't get your own room. Come on, you're paying <laughs> for the fucking house, and you don't get your own room. No, I need my own goddamn room. Uh, <laughs> Happily married. <laughs> it's it's very it's very Ian Forster of you, um, John. Thank you so much. You're wonderful. Um, well, thank you very much, Gina. Thank you for listening, and I hope you got some good painting done while we entertain you with our amazing guest. If you like what you're hearing, follow and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done so yet. And if you're so inclined, rate us whether you love or hate us. We love hearing all the different opinions and appreciate the feedback. You can reach out to us at artgrindpodcast at gmail.com or DM us on IG at artgrindpodcast. You faithful listeners have the power to help us grow. So please spread the word. It's free and you'll feel good about it. So until next time, stay on the grind while we fill your mind.